There has to be a societal shift if we want to fight misinformation, but I think that that's through kind of education and the empowerment of readers. And I do like the idea that in this kind of disaggregated media world, you can pick and choose and decide who, who you trust. Welcome to the Lost Debate, a show for Political Eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, one quick announcement on the front end of today's episode. Our beloved co-host, Corey Bradford, has moved to a different role in our company, and he's going to be focusing mainly on our social media platforms, TikTok and Instagram. So you could check him out there. You can search the Lost Debate on TikTok and Instagram. And he's going to bring that same spirit, that same energy to telling stories every single day across those platforms. Uh, and Ricky... You know, I know that this has been a pretty busy, busy week for you. I saw you on mm -hmm. TV on Friday. How did it go, Bill Maher? Um, I think it went pretty well. It was kind of an intimidating panel to be with between Piers Morgan and Bill Maher, but it was fun. Um, yeah, I, I I really enjoyed it, and I hope one day to be going back on the show. And so, do do they air everything that happens on that show? Or do yeah, they I don't think they cut anything. Out? Oh wow! I mean, I, they they do pre-tape it, so I guess theoretically, if something went like disastrously wrong, they could. But no, it was just straight through. And from what I understand, you you took a prop with you is that right oh my gosh i can't, i don't think i can say that on air but i did take a certain prop out of a certain suitcase yes yeah yeah well you can watch the the whole show on on hbo real time with bill maher and i thought you did a great job it was Thank really you. fascinating and Appreciate i think that. like I think hopefully they'll invite you back. Like, I hope so. Yeah. yeah I think yeah. he said you might be the youngest person he's ever had. Yeah, before, I yeah. think he said there might have been like a teenager talking about climate change at one time, but the, the youngest panelist he's had in 22 seasons, which is oh, wow. super cool. Incredible. Yeah, I was actually getting texts from people saying, no, she's not actually 22. I'm like, no, that's actually true. Yeah. <laughs> um, so much hate for saying nuclear. I, yeah, I've been, I actually yeah. thought about it when I know. you were, you did like so well. I wasn't going to text you about yeah. that and get in your head because I hear you say nuclear all the time. So I've, yeah. I've kind of internalized it. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know where that came from. Well, good work. Uh, we have a busy show today. On today's show, Substack or Bust, how independent journalists are changing an already fragile media landscape. Silicon Valley shows its NIMBY stripes in America's richest zip code. And then we debate the newest defund target, the FBI. And finally, we'll bring you a few updates on the war in Ukraine. But we begin with a horrific attack on a champion of free expression, Author Salman Rushdie was nearly killed on Friday when a man rushed the stage at an event in New York and stabbed him repeatedly. And while we can't say for sure, it seems more than reasonable to think that this happened over a fatwa that was issued against him by the Iranian Supreme Leader back in 1989. I distinctly remember Christopher Hitchens, you know, the the late author and writer who's a friend of Salman Rushdie, repeatedly talking about this fatwa in one speech after another. Let's kick it to Christopher Hitchens, who basically lays out the implications of this fatwa. This was the most extraordinarily reactionary challenge to the idea of free expression that had occurred in my lifetime. The theocratic head of a foreign state offers money in his own name for the suborning of murder. The offense being that of writing a work of fiction and the purported victim or intended victim being someone who isn't an Iranian and uh, lives in England. It was rather the same feeling as I later had on the 11th of September 2001, a direct confrontation between everything I love and everything I hate. And so, Ricky, how do we get from 1989 all the way to 2022? 
where we see this horrific act happening so long after the initial declaration. Mm -hmm. Well, there have been so many attempts on his life and also the lives of people just involved with this book and translating it through the years. But um, as you said, it spans three decades since its publication in 1988. Satanic Verses essentially fictionalizes Muhammad in a way that is offensive to some followers of Islam. But I think probably in the scheme of things, if you read it, is not quite as offensive as you might think based on this reaction but essentially the the issue that people take is that it kind of humanizes him as a person and not um humanizes muhammad Muhammad, as like a human being with flaws versus like a perfect kind of godly figure back in 1989 khomeini the um the leader of iran issued a fatwa against him for millions of dollars um essentially calling people to attempt to take his life while he was living in the united kingdom um there is an attempted bombing to kill him that august Um, In 1991, the Japanese translator of the book was killed. A Turkish novelist who had um, started a translation of the book was targeted in a hotel fire in 1993, killed 37 people. The Norwegian publisher was shot outside of his home the same year. And he was united by the United Kingdom in 2007, which kind of renewed a sparked protest. And then the Iranian leader's successor called the fatwa solid and irrevocable in 2019 and was kicked off Twitter for that. So that's kind of the most recent chapter in this story, essentially. But what happened on Friday was that he was stabbed 10 times during a speech, ironically, about how America is a refuge for authors who are controversial like himself. He lost an eye or is likely to lose an eye. Um, he had damaged nerves. His liver was stabbed. And the... Um, the perpetrator was Hadi Matar, a 24-year-old from New Jersey. And as you said, it seems reasonable to assume that evidence will continue to come out that suggests that he, this was religiously motivated. His social media seems to be suggestive of that. And his mother says that he was radicalized by a trip to the Middle East in 2018. Yeah, and I think some of the context here is really important. And I want to be clear that we don't know the direct connection between the fatwa or between what I'm about to say and this particular incident, but this Mm -hmm. is just context that we're reading this, right? So in January 2020, uh, Trump authorized a strike in Baghdad that killed Qasem Soleimani, who's a high-level Iranian figure. A lot of people think he was the second most powerful man in Iran. And most people watching that, whether they agreed with that act or not, concluded that, all right, something's going to happen now. There's going to be some kind of reprisal. And just in the past week now, we've had the Justice Department unseal charges against an Iran Revolutionary Guard member for a murder plot against John Bolton, the national security figure who's very tough on Iran. Mm -hmm. Um, An armed man was arrested outside of an Iranian dissident uh, journalist's home in Brooklyn. That was July 31st, so a couple weeks before. And so you have a couple of things happening all at once, and then Rushdie. I'm not saying for sure I know what's going on with Rushdie, but I would say there's a lot of smoke. We may find mm-hmm. out there's fire or not. And so this is unprecedented, like that uh, a foreign actor, a hostile adversary, you know, potentially, allegedly, if we find out, is involved in the murder of people on American soil, that would be mm-hmm. a huge deal. I think even the implication itself is explosive, and I think it's going to impact negotiations over things like the Iran nuclear deal. Like there's a guy named Syed Mohammed Morandi, who is an advisor to the Iranian negotiators, tweeted the following. He says, I won't be shedding tears for a writer who spouts endless hatred and contempt for Muslims and Islam, a pawn of empire who poses as a post-colonial novelist. So whether or not they were involved or not, there seemed to be some people cheering this on uh, at high levels in Iran. And first of all, like to be clear, based on what you said, I have not read this book, 
most people I have heard comment on it says that this it's quite a stretch to say this book was anti-Islam. Mm-hmm. But I think I, and I think a lot of people have written about this, like Adam Gopnik and The New Yorker, believe that let's pretend that it was critical of Islam. Mm-hmm. You know, to me, that's what free speech is about. Like Islam is a set of beliefs like anything else. Like in this country, we and I certainly have criticized evangelical Christianity, for example. To me, like any religion, any set of beliefs should not be off limits to criticism. And you could respond to criticism with retorts, with words, Mm -hmm. with challenges back and saying like people, you know, I'm an atheist, people can criticize me for being an atheist, I can criticize them for their religious beliefs, that's what America is about. But to take it to the level of violence to me seems like like we need to stop as a society and say this is not okay. Mm -hmm. And I think there's like a certain nuance to the conversation around Islam sometimes where we attach ideas to people and say that that criticism of Islam is somehow racist. Race, racially motivated. Which it is which, sometimes. Which yeah. it can be, but I think that uh, you can critique ideas without critiquing the people themselves or the groups of people who hold them necessarily. Right. And I, I think it's an interesting fault line and his, his three decades in hiding is a demonstration of just the sensitivity around this subject. But it, And as much as it's disturbing to see him kind of under siege in, in the UK and the US and countries that do support free speech, it also there have been throughout the years heartening responses like for example in berkeley there is a bombing attempt of a bookstore that carried his his book right after it came out and um all the the owner of the bookstore called all of his employees in after that happened and said do you still want to sell this book and potentially risk our lives for the sake of free expression and they all voted to continue to do that and even just this saturday it became like right up to the top of the Amazon's bestseller list again. And so there's a heartening response of support towards him that I think stretches back through three decades, but it's also just horrifying to see that this man's entire life was basically destroyed for all that time. Well, uh, you allude to this sort of debate around separating the ideas of Islam from the ethnicity, which I think Mm -hmm. is a very complicated debate in our nation's history, especially in the post 9-11 world. There was a very heated debate on real time years ago between Sam Harris, Bill Maher, and Ben Affleck. You're not listening Absolutely to not. what well, we are saying. You guys are saying, if you want to be liberals, believe in liberal principles, right. like freedom of speech, like, right. um, you know, we are endowed by our uh, forefathers with an inalienable ethic, all men are created no. equal. No, Ben, we have to be able to criticize bad ideas. And of course we Islam, do. No liberal doesn't okay, want to okay. criticize bad ideas. But Islam but at why this moment when, is the mother load of bad ideas. Jesus. So we have, we have That's ideas just a like, fact. like blasphemy. It's not, it's not, no. No. It is it's a, an ugly apostasy. It is it's a basic liberal principle tolerance. Let me unpack it. But not for intolerance. No, of course not, but the picture you're painting is to some extent true, but is hugely incomplete. It is certainly true that plenty of fanatics and jihadis are Muslim, but the people who are standing up to them, Malala, uh, Muhammad Ali uh, Dadak in, in Iran, in prison for nine years for speaking up for Christians. Uh, a friend that I had in Pakistan who was shot this year, uh, Rashid Rahman, for defending people accused of apostasy. Okay. Nick, or how about the more than a billion those, people those who are aren't Muslims fanatical, too. who don't punish well, women, who just want to go to the store? Okay. Wait a second. Sandwiches. Wait a second. Wait a second. Wait a second. You're saying all Muslims. Okay. Wait a second. Wait a second. Stereotyping. Wait a second. Wait a second. And you're painting the whole group religion with that. No, no. Let's get down to who has the right answer here. A billion people, you say. All these billion people don't hold any of these. Five or something. Don't hold these pernicious beliefs. No, I would. Well, they don't. That's just not true, Ben. That's just not true. I think this is a really important discussion, and I, 
I'm not like here for the parlor game of like, I'm not even to call it a parlor game, like the debate around which religion is worse, but I want to carve out the the space for people to criticize religion, period. Mm -hmm. And I think it's true here in American society where I, I think most people in my circles will say, Christianity, let's criticize it. The abortion debate is a great example of that. Half my family is Hindu. I'm free to criticize the treatment of women uh, in that culture and in the religion itself. Uh, and then there are tons of people in the Muslim world who also both argue that they should have the freedom to criticize Islam, but also others should. There was actually a 1991 article uh, by a Syrian intellectual named Sadiq Jalal al-Azam, specifically about the Rushdie incident, in which he accused Western liberals of having uh, a patronizing view of Muslims. And I think his point is, look, this is a this is a huge community of people with diverse viewpoints. There are uh, atheists within, within Muslim culture. There are people who are like your sort of cafeteria Muslims, like there are Catholics, and then there are extremists, like in other religions. And we, not only should we allow that debate to play out, but we shouldn't then carve it out and say it's off limits because there are people who assign skin color and the, to the religion and criticize them in tandem. Those people are wrong. Those people are racist. But you have to put those people aside and say there's also a belief system here that we can debate. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there's there are examples of the intolerance for critique from extreme fringes of the Muslim world that have crept into our society repeatedly. Like, There's an example from a Yale publishing house where like a decade or so ago, this author wrote a book about the like violence that erupted as a result of cartoons that were published of Mohammed. The publishing house agreed to publish it, but then Yale University stepped in and said that they wouldn't. And so it's really, it's scary to see this idea that certain ideas or certain methods of expression are off limits but then obviously the rushy situation goes to show exactly why that's the case so it's it's definitely a difficult pressure point yeah and i think when you alluded to before the cartoons like charlie hebdo uh, there were multiple journalists killed from this publication that mm -hmm. uh, published a cartoon that was i think explicitly mocking mm -hmm. muhammad the surviving journalists received an award from pen america and then there are certain which is like you know kind of a, an entity that celebrates journalistic freedom there were some members of Pan America, I think many, who criticized the decision to give that award. I mean, some of these people were shot in the face who survived. And when Rusty was asked about the criticism of it, he said, well, I hope those people criticizing that award, nobody ever comes after them. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, he's, he's spoken on the record for that. He signed the Harper's letter. There were a lot of people who mocked him for signing the Harper's letter. And I think people were looking at it like, you know, there's this woman, Laura Bradley in the Daily Beast, who called him the, the signatories to the Harper's letter, which was a letter celebrating free speech and, and defending it. Mm -hmm. This writer called them entitled famous people and rich fools who are detracting from the pandemic, the movement for black lives, homelessness, recession. And I think what's interesting to me is that people like Laura Bradley, and there were a lot of people in my life like this, don't view the fight for free speech as an existential crisis, where mm -hmm. certainly if you're Salman Rushdie, it's true, but also if you're living anywhere, like most other places in this planet, a lot of people argue the US too, but most places on this planet, this is an existential crisis, mm -hmm. like being able to criticize religious fundamentalists no matter where you live, be able to criticize your government, being be able, able to, to publish leave a religion. Right. And so this is part of this elite worldview where like people think the Upper West Side is the only place in American society and they can't widen their lens, which is a good transition to the changing journalism 
happening in this country. I think there are a lot of people trying to give voice to these ideas. Substack, I would say, is really on the leading edge of this. They're changing away a lot of most of the prominent voices or many of the prominent voices in journalism get their message in front of readers. Gone are the days where you know every big columnist needed a big mass head behind them. In the background, we have a separate problem, which is the decline of local newsrooms. These, obviously, these two things are happening in tandem. And the, the backdrop for us discussing this was the CEO of Substack, Chris Best, appeared on Rogan recently, and he basically laid out his vision for this platform. A lot of the best writers in the world, in my estimation, were getting kind of tissue rejected from the places where they would have been before. Tissue rejected? Like, uh, it's an, uh, an analogy, like they're getting, like an organ transplant that oh, fails kind of wow. thing. They're getting sort of pushed out from the, the places that would have been their home and where they could have done the thing that, that mattered to them. Ricky, like, you know a lot of people who've done really well on Substack and people who've left their platforms to print, uh, you know, like people like Barry Weiss, Matt Taibbi, Matt Iglesias. Tons of prominent journalists, you know, even, you know, from from the left, right and center, you've got the, the guys over at Dispatch, who I think came out of Fox News. What do you make of this phenomenon? I think that Substack coming up and kind of re returning voices to smaller platforms and to individual people and to returning a voice away from from these big mastheads to journalists, allowing them to actually have editorial control is a really positive thing. Um, obviously, it's not a perfect system. And in a lot of cases, people did build a name in, in established media networks and then left and kind of took a little chunk of that business with them. But at the same time, we haven't really seen a few generations of journalists move through this system yet. And so there is a there is room to pay it forward to potentially see new voices rising through these platforms. So I understand the critiques of Substack that they're a lot of people did have a benefit going into the the that world and they already did have a following mm -hmm. and it's hard to make a name in that space but yeah. um but i think all in all it responds to a really big problem in our in the world of journalism where you know editorial control was really getting more and more removed from from writers who felt that there was kind of like an ideological conformity in newsrooms i would say we have a crisis in local journalism. The Bureau of Labor Statistics reports an astounding 57% decline in newsroom employees since 2004. And in that same period of time, you've seen the newsroom staff per 100,000 people, a measure called covered density, has dropped by 62%. Mm -hmm. And there are a couple of different factors here. One is the loss of advertising revenue. You know, Google, Facebook, remember Craigslist was a big driver of this before. Um, you have market trends towards aggregation and free news, um, including stuff like this, like podcasts, which are largely free. Um, and then you have hedge funds, private equity groups, et cetera, scooping up a lot of these assets. This is all happening in tandem. Mm -hmm. I would say a fourth thing is just rising distrust and polarization mm -hmm. of mass media in general. Uh, you put that all together with just technological revolutions and you have a crisis for local journalism and that means you have fewer people in state houses, you've got fewer people in foreign news coverage and mm -hmm. foreign bureaus. Interacting with day-to-day -day citizens on the ground. Yeah, and some of these numbers are pretty crazy. So you, per $100 million spent by government, in 2004, you had three reporters per $100 million. In 2020, you have one reporter per $100 million. 
um, units of government. So like given, given agencies at the local and federal level. In 2000, you had one reporter per 3.8 units of government. Mm -hmm. In 2020, you have one reporter per 10 units of government. And you could look at the stats, like how many people are in the state houses, yada, yada, yada. It's pretty staggering change. You combine that with the fact that you have less editorial oversight, which I think can go one way or the other. You've been at Reason, you've been at the New York Post and other publications. Is that a serious uh, concern of yours? Like if somebody who's been in newsrooms, like the editorial judgment of people saying, all right, we need an extra source for this claim that you're making, or we need to edit this thing out, or we need to protect like against libel or something like that. Like, are you a little concerned that those checks in, in the system aren't gonna be here anymore? Yeah, I mean, I think those checks are um, obviously necessary in these big media outlets and something that is certainly a positive in terms of making sure that what gets out there is true. At the same time, I think that there's just an inevitable reality that in a world where media becomes more kind of dissolved into little corners and pockets that that's going to be lost to a certain degree. Um, and I think that there is kind of like a two pronged level of responsibility here. First, obviously, with creators who do develop a good deal of influence to make sure that they are being stringent. And secondly, I think also, you know, even if it something of like civics education and teaching people how to interpret news, how to look at sources, how to scrutinize facts that are being put before them. Like I know growing up in the internet age, I was taught a lot of that mm -hmm. in school, which I'd imagine just like 10 years before me wasn't really even a conversation that people were having because we had these these newspapers with all those checks that would be done for us. So I think that there's there's there has to be a societal shift if we want to fight misinformation. But I think that that's through kind of education and the empowerment of readers. And I do like the idea that in this kind of disaggregated media world, you can pick and choose and decide who who you trust. And of course, that does that does come with some downsides because there you can end up in an extreme. But it also comes with the upside of the fact that you know, if there's someone that speaks to you personally, there's an opportunity for them to gain your trust in a direct relationship with you in a way that they couldn't before, which I think is kind of amazing. Yeah, I'm going to link in the show notes. There's this book called Infamous Scribblers. It's all about the the colonial era newspaper mm -hmm. culture. And, you know, what, what used to go on back then was you had this pamphleteer culture at first, mm -hmm. and then it started to aggregate into what we think of as newspapers. And actually, this this was a budding industry back then, largely driven by innovations in the printing press. Yeah. And there was this period of time early on in our country's history where it, you know, obviously there were all the inequalities around race and economics that existed in colonial America, but within like what it meant to be a citizen at that point, it was fairly easy to disseminate your ideas relative to what it was a hundred years later, for example. And so in a way, this disaggregation is kind of bringing us back to our roots in a way, but probably mm -hmm. in a more egalitarian way, just because society is more equal than yeah. it was. Nobody is more interesting and relevant to this discussion than Bari Weiss. Somebody I don't know, I think you know her fairly well. Somebody who I'm just so fascinated with as a human because of people I know on the left. She is like, if there ever was a such thing as a Rorsak test uh, for <laughs> friends of mine on the left, it's yeah. her. People react so strongly to her. I don't know why, because when I ask people what position she holds that they find so offensive, I never get a clear answer. She resigned from the New York Times. She was an op-ed editor slash contributor, I think. She wrote a letter. I had never read this until this morning, this mm -hmm. letter, which I find an astonishing piece of writing. 
castigating the Times over certain decisions that they made. And so she said, there's a new consensus that has emerged in the press, that truth isn't a process of collective discovery, but an orthodoxy already known to an enlightened few whose job is to inform everyone else. She said, Twitter is not on the masthead of the New York Times, but Twitter has become an, its ultimate editor. As the ethics and mores of the platform have become those of the paper, the paper itself has increasingly become a kind of performance space. Stories are chosen and told in a way to satisfy the narrowest of audiences rather than to allow a curious public to read about the world and then draw their own conclusions. She left and started her own Substack, which is wildly successful as of October 2021. She had more than 100,000 subscribers and was making $800,000 a year. What does her success tell you? I think it tells me that there's a huge group of people that feel that this kind of unified voice that comes out of papers like the Times is just not serving them, that they want more nuance. And I think this, I mean, this letter she wrote in 2020 after the Tom Cotton op-ed controversy, right. which even if you disagree with his viewpoint, the idea that it should be revoked as an opinion piece on behalf of the Times is really crazy. Yeah. And they just had like an internal uproar over it. I totally Let's disagree with Let's pause for a second to describe that controversy yeah. because- so Tom Cotton, a sitting United States senator, advocated for some kind of military action. I forget what um, it was. Yeah, I was like bringing, uh, I think saying that like we should mobilize troops in cases of rioting during yes. the BLM protests, which go. is not something that I agree with. Right. But I certainly think that when you have an opinion piece that is like presented as an opinion piece as a newspaper who's that's from a very prominent person in the political discourse and then staffers like freak out on Twitter and people freak out on Twitter and then you revoke it just on that basis, like that just goes to show that there was a serious decay in like journalistic standards. And Barry Weiss in her letter calls out it not just the problem around the, the cotton op-ed, which I think they ran, but then they basically apologized yeah, yeah, for they putting put, like, it out there. Yeah, they put a little disclaimer at the and bottom. Then people, I think, lost their jobs over this, like the op-ed yeah. you know, editor lost his job, the James The opinion Bennett. editor, yeah. Um, Weiss calls out the hypocrisy saying, look, like for instance, there was an interview, um, I think it was Cheryl Strait of Alice Walker, super offensive views. I didn't even realize that until reading this article. Uh, and then I went and looked myself and there's Haqqani wrote an op-ed who's a fucking terrorist wrote an op-ed in, he's a Taliban official terrorist wrote an op-ed in the New York Times. You have Chinese propagandists writing uh, op-eds in the New York Times. Like for some reason that's okay, but a sitting United States yeah. Senator is not, it's absurd. And then yeah. you have like this newsroom culture where you know, they're forcing out people like Don McNeil, uh, you know, barreling through their own mm -hmm. labor protections to push people out who've been longtime employees with weird justifications of it and double standards and culture where people are sell like performing on Twitter, ganging up on each other. It makes you not trust in your times. And I, I read it every morning. I find it indispensable, but I often read articles saying, what are they leaving out? Because there's a culture there where if there's anything inconvenient to their worldview, they're gonna pull punches. Yeah, either that or they'll bury it like in the 30th right. paragraph of this like long-winded story and it's something super salacious like, oh yeah, and then that Hunter Biden laptop thing, like let's just put that down. Right. One thing that I really like about Barry and what she's doing with her Substack is that she's not just publishing her own stuff. She's amassed this huge following of people that I right. think, including myself, who believe that she's uniquely intellectually honest in the way that I might not agree with her on every point, but I think that she is pursuing truth in a more unfettered way, especially as seeing how she has kind of expanded since leaving the Times. But she's also having a lot of people write under her 
like with their bylines under her um, like email list on Substack and yep. and expanding and and kind of creating this model of okay now we have this new this new utility of Substack and how can we use this to aggregate new voices so Barry including myself is having people um, write for her Substack so I yep. think that I think that's cool like bringing new young voices in and and providing that platform in this new kind of disaggregated media space. Yeah, there's one thing I would I would ask of the entire new media space, us being a part of it, mm -hmm. is that we don't recreate the problems of the legacy media. And one of the things, and first of all, we have to preserve what works in legacy media. Like the fact that I've got friends who are in, you know, the the Beijing and Shanghai bureaus and out and you know, we're out in Afghanistan, Iraq and all that, putting your lies on the line. There's not a substacker doing that. Like I there I know there's some exceptions to this. Like there's like the sinicism newsletter and things like that but th a lot of it is aggregation so that stuff needs to continue to exist but then the culture of independent media as independent media becomes the dominant media which we're basically there now we need to be ruthless about the alex joneses of the world the misinformation and and, and factual errors that happen um and we also you know I've, I've criticized breaking points for this before like we can't peddle conspiracy theories we can't be running stories like january 6 was an inside job and then not do follow-up stories to correct the record and we'll get to some of their newest stuff re um soon um but like i asked this of the taibis of the world etc who i think often produce really good journalism is there's sometimes i worry that there's like this like you know lunchroom cafeteria like oh we're the new cool kids now and there becomes an in-group culture where people refrain from criticizing each other um, they don't actually apply those principles of liberal debate and fierce critic respectful criticism and checking of each other because they view each other as fellow travelers whereas i say look like let's mix it up let's hold each other accountable let's not be like the cool kids who protect each other Let's actually create a new culture where people actually like have robust debate, fact check mm -hmm. each other and not recreate the, these biases. Because what she says in this article is like there's a certain worldview and then they, they, they find facts at the New York Times to fit that worldview. That certainly could be true of a lot of these independent outlets. And we got to make sure that we hold each other accountable so we don't produce that very same phenomenon. Yeah. And I think we're at the very early days of this new sort of landscape. And so deciding how that goes and, and the degree of interconnectedness between these little bubbles will be, be interesting to see how it all pans out. Not in My Backyard has a special ring to it in Atherton, California. Silicon Valley executives, many of whom pay immense lip service to the country's housing crisis, do not seem eager to welcome anyone into their neighborhood. We have this juicy story coming out of the richest zip code in America. It's a place actually I used to go raise money for Democratic candidates uh, back when I was running Arena. Didn't even know what Atherton was, but then I would go from one just absolutely astonishingly expensive house to another collecting checks for my candidates. And I'd be like, what is this place, Atherton? Well, it turns out, uh, you know, as I said, most expensive uh, zip code in the country. I think the average home price is like north of $7 million in this town. It's a very small town, Silicon Valley Enclave. And they recently had this amazing debate over housing density. And we've we've covered this so many times. We interviewed Connor Doherty, the New York Times, who's written about the Bay Area uh, housing phenomenon, essentially castigating liberals, uh, among others, for failing to build new housing density. And that's driving up the prices and making the world, you know, like more expensive for new entrants. But it turns out it's not just a problem of liberals or conservatives. Like, I would say this is a fairly eclectic town of libertarian Silicon Valley people like Mark Andreessen with 
you know, drapers of the world to all the way to the, the left-wing people who are raising money for candidates that I knew. Th what they all have in common, though, is they don't want any townhomes to come into to Atherton, California. They blocked a measure to increase density to bring townhomes into Atherton. And I find this just a just a amazing example of hypocrisy uh, and Ricky, I know you have the timeline here. Walk us through what's going on in this town. So California, according to California law um, with housing development, they were on the hook to add 348 units of housing. And in June, the city council proposed an overlay designating nine townhouse developments. The majority would have had uh, five or six units, the largest 40 units on five acres. Then in July, um, the volume of responses and critiques from residents of that plan led the council to remove the townhouse from the plans and they proposed a new program um, on August 2nd uh, asking people to rent out accessory properties and cottages to increase uh, dwelling units uh, potentially floating the idea of building housing on school property for teachers and in that new proposed program they said that Atherton is indeed different and cited the fact that few people are considered at risk for housing in their neighborhood. Yeah, there was a local housing advocate who said Atherton talks about multifamily housing as if it was a Martian invasion. <laughs> and the, I think the most, a lot of the press coverage of this has focused on one very influential venture capitalist named Mark Andreessen. And Mark Andreessen is a, a titanic figure in American society. He was responsible for Netscape. Uh, I would rank him probably among the most intellectually interesting and intelligent people I've ever heard speak. He's a super impressive figure. He's invested in a ton of amazing companies. He's responsible for a lot of just really fascinating, thought-provoking scholarship on just the future of technology. And, and his co-founder, Ben Horowitz, has written some amazing books on how to run companies. All of that said, he really stepped in it here because he and his wife wrote in, in public comment that they're, quote, immensely against this multifamily development. And they this is the quote from their email. It says, I'm writing this letter to communicate our immense objection to the creation of multifamily overlay zones in Atherton. Please immediately remove, all caps, all multifamily overlay zoning projects from the housing element, which will be submitted to the state in July. Like, first of all, I'm not sure he saw this email coming out, but like it, it kind of reveals something about the way these people interact with their government that he's just like directing them to do. He's like, just remove it. Um, that's number one. Number two is that this is a guy who has written repeatedly about the need for more housing density. Just this week, he announced that he was investing in Adam Newman, the disgraced founder of WeWork, is creating a, like a new housing company. Andreessen Horowitz is investing in this company. The very first line of the post that Andreessen wrote was our nation has a housing crisis. And then he goes on to say, the demographic trends driving America's housing market are impossible to ignore. Our country is creating households faster than we're building houses. Structural shortages in available homes for sale push housing prices higher. I wonder where the structural problems come from. Uh, in 2020, he wrote an amazing essay called it's, it's Time to Build. And he wrote about, he lamented, the crazily skyrocketing housing prices in places like San Francisco, making it nearly impossible for regular people to move in and take the jobs of the future. Now, this is exactly the thing that he's driving right now. Where are the police officers um, serving Atherton or the teachers going to live? They're just saying, live somewhere else. And I find that problematic. I'm going to be a little more sympathetic to this for 
of the reason that I, I believe in local governments over state governments in general. Um, and I don't love the idea that California is going to prescribe to a small town exactly how many housing units need to be here. I think there's a difference between a town of 7,500 people and a city like San Francisco, right. where San Francisco has systemic laws that are keeping housing down, that are keeping a certain amount of floors. And there's an overwhelming influx of demand for housing well, there. Can I, I pause think you it's, there though? Like San Francisco could be 20 small enclaves. The reason these enclaves exist is because elites create these. Like it's there's no reason why Atherton, Palo Alto, Mountain View, you put those all together, aren't shouldn't be a city. There's tons of demand there. Anybody mm -hmm. will buy any property, like any townhome you put up there will be snatched up in a second. And it's the very same phenomenon. The, the restrictive zoning covenants that you see in, in San Francisco exist in Atherton too. It's just they happen to be small by design. But I know? think that there's, I think there's a, there, to me, there's a gradation of how important certain things are. And this, the idea that a city where there are tons of young people trying to start their career, there are tons of job opportunities and availabilities that people are flocking to that is on a much larger scale, just suppressing that and being hypocritical about that to me is like a, a couple hundred housing units in a more isolated area that's harder to afford. The, I mean, I'm sure that the cost of living there is extremely high. Yeah. I mean, I, I obviously completely agree that there's a clear level of hypocrisy, but I would say in terms of like the fish to fry and the things that California should be really worried about, it's, it's the urban areas and the urban development because that's where the demand is and that's where the jobs are and that's where people are overwhelmingly attempting to live and are just struggling immensely to do. But I would say like, and I don't know if, how much time you spent in that area, the the area around Atherton has its own demands of young people because a lot of these young people have to go take salaries, which you and I would look at and be like, wow, those are amazing salaries, but they have to be within driving distance to Google. They have to be mm -hmm. in driving distance to Palo Alto. They've got to live somewhere, right? And all those are little enclaves, right? So something's got to give. Now we could take the state out of the picture and just say, what's the local responsibility? I yeah, say- Yeah, I think there's a degree of local responsibility yeah. for sure. And I think that, you know, there's not- I don't really have an issue with the alternative of renting out dwellings on your property and stuff like that too. Yeah. Like, I mean, I think that having some degree of flexibility and maybe not just this artificial housing development, like maybe, I mean, 40 units is really large and like could potentially change the dynamics of the neighborhood. And so I think that allowing local residents to have some degree of say over how that develops and kind of blends into their existing neighborhood that they pay taxes into that right. they support i'm i'm okay with them having a voice and compromising yes yeah. i think like yeah and i think to maybe close this out is like i agree they should have a say i just think they should do a different thing with that say i think we shouldn't create neighborhoods towns where the very people who are servicing the people who live there can't live anywhere in the vicinity mm -hmm. of it. like do you no, have to drive from Absolutely. like fucking san jose or something to teach in a school in mm -hmm. atherton you know, like this is a problem. Mm -hmm. and no, totally is. I don't Especially when the, the thought leaders, I know the hypocrisy, I keep coming back to the, the fact that some of these thought leaders who've been pushing everybody else, and I agree with their pushes, mm -hmm. aren't living up to it. Like they got to fix their shit because uh, we need 
like prominent smart voices like Andreessen to be as clean as possible mm-hmm. on these issues because no, he's actually one of the the best critics of this dynamic. Yeah. So he can't yeah. like the fact that he's like squarely within the criticism to me is astounding, and I hope he fixes it. Um, we'll we'll obviously keep an eye on this new Adam Newman company. Um, it shows you that really like the idea that there's no second acts in America is <laughs> like you, this is a country that will allow any entrepreneur to fail and come back unless you go to prison. And even then, maybe you can you can have a second, third, fourth act. And so we'll see how that goes. We have a big debate, Ricky, around the FBI. Um, we talked about former President Donald Trump a lot last week, and the fallout continues from the seizure of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. Um, but as much as we talked about him, Trump, we only touched on the agency who carried all of this out, the FBI, very briefly. Um, and that has not been the case for a lot of conservative circles where many prominent media figures and lawmakers are calling to, quote, defund the FBI. If that slogan sounds familiar to people, obviously it echoes the defund the police. I think that's purposeful in a lot of cases. What do you make of this debate around the future of the FBI? I mean, I think that the optics right now are kind of disastrous for a lot of the conservatives who are um, calling to defund the FBI when you compare their tweets from just a year or two ago. I pulled a few examples. Marjorie Taylor Greene in June of 2021 said, crime is exploding in Democrat-run cities. This is 100% the result of their left-wing policies of defunding the police, backing BLM slash Antifa, destroying families, and coddling of criminals. Interesting to see coddling in Mm. there. Uh, A little creep from the coddling (laughs) of the American mind, it appears. Um, And then August in 2022, she said, defund the FBI in all capitals, exclamation point. Candace Owens, kind of similar, almost worse in my opinion, um, the comparison here. In November of 2020, she said, I've said it for years that AOC is a gift to the Republicans. She's a cancerous cell to the Democratic Party. We should always encourage her insane proclamations like defund the police. Then in August of this year, she said the FBI must be legally and formally dissolved. I no longer recognize the country I live in. Left or right, we must come together to fight this evil. It's just, it's it's not good. It doesn't look good for anyone because if you're worried about the safety of local police departments being dissolved and not, you know, you can be sympathetic to reforms right. in the same way that you can be with the FBI as exactly. well. And um, I think it's, it's hard to wrap your head around what the FBI does because so much of it is secretive versus police officers. It's a little more obvious, but um, yeah, I think they're kind of overlooking the fact that they are repeating the same defund the police optics. Or explicitly doing it like the fact that they're gleefully using the language makes me wonder like, yeah there's like the abolish versus the yeah. defund there's some people saying abolish yeah which we will there. come back to but let anyways me, <laughs> let me just do something i thought would not be necessary which is talk about what the fbi does and in order to do this i'm just going to read out i went to the press release page of the fbi this is just yesterday's press releases coming out of the fbi i'll start with operation Cross Country 12. This is the headline. FBI announces results of nationwide sex trafficking operation. I just clicked on one link. Yeah. Right. 84 minor victims uh, were located, 37 who had been reported missing, 141 adults in a sex trafficking ring. That's one press release. Here are some others. Uh, Kanawha County man sentenced to prison for role in multi-state methamphetamine conspiracy. Las Cruces man 
uh, charged for threatening to burn New Mexico State University. That seems important. Lansing pharmaceutical sales representative sentenced to one year in prison for defrauding Michigan State University of $1.2 million in prescription drugs. Ovaso man pleads guilty to child pornography charge. Long Island chiropractor pleads guilty to $1 million in healthcare fraud. Phoenix man sentenced to 25 years for sexual abuse of a child. Montgomery man convicted of committing multiple armed carjackings, individuals charged with labor racketeering in the port of San Juan, alien smuggling coordinator pleads guilty to bribing former uh, border patrol agent, Starkville man sentenced to 78 months, paycheck protection program fraud, Florida couple couple charged with uh, sending threatening communications to law enforcement and others in Northern Ohio, and FBI Fayetteville partners with Arkansas law enforcement agencies to combat human trafficking. So, and actually, that's not everything that happened yesterday. That's just most of what the FBI released in press releases yesterday. And so to me, this is an agency that is absolutely essential. If somebody's child is kidnapped across state lines or, you know, the example of the Iranian potentially infiltration of the United States, mm-hmm. people trying to, you know, like ter- commit terrorist acts. You think about the Unabomber through the mail, the Oklahoma City bombing. You know, just staggering cybersecurity. We need the FBI. And I don't know, it's like absurd that I have to say it. I know you agree. It's absolutely insane to me that I even have to say that. Yeah. And not to mention all of the like larger scale things that might not be coming out in press releases as well, just based on the security aspects of it. But that would include counterterrorism, counterintelligence, cybercrime, WMDs, transnational organized crime, like larger human trafficking uh, organizations. And so I think it's, undeniable that this is like a utility that we need. I think there are also reasonable, legitimate criticisms of it in the same way that I think that was where the defund the police conversation just kind of went off the rails and alienated people because there are problems with the police. There are problems with the FBI, but just to say like, let's dispense of them entirely. People like critics are right to say that's hugely dangerous and i don't think we can even comprehend what that would mean right well let's kick it over to breaking points they there are legitimate criticisms of the fbi i'm not sure they got there but let's listen to what they had to say but fbi abuses are not just something to read about in the history books they're real and they're continuing right up to this very day the bureau has routinely racially profiled surveilled and trapped a generation of young muslim men post 9 11 preying on those who were either desperate mentally unwell or unintelligent and easily manipulated And with a new focus on domestic terrorism, they decided to use the skills they gained creating terror plots that they could then pretend to disrupt in order to manufacture a plot to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. A jury took the highly unusual step of letting two of those indicted off due to these bureau abuses. So first of all, I think for Crystal to imply that the U.S. somehow created this plot against Gretchen Whitmer is a huge exaggeration. And of all the facts that she could use to talk about FBI overreach, this is a strange one. But you and I had a little bit of a debate on this back when um, that case was decided. Let's throw it back to that clip. Well, I'm going to quote Kevin Williamson from the National Review. This is, mind you, this is a, a conservative publication, and, and he sums up roughly where I am on this, and, and this is what he said. He said, the acquittal of two of the four suspects in the Whitmer kidnapping plot case is one of those events that lends itself to unfortunate overinterpretation. The acquittal does not mean that the men did not do anything wrong, or even that they did not do what they're accused of. Still less does it mean that the entire episode was, as some sympathizers say, a case of government entrapment, nor does this mean some other critics charge that the government is soft on right-wing violence or on political violence perpetrated by white people. All this means is that the prosecution 
failed to prove its case to the satisfaction of the jury. That's it. And that happens pretty often. And so I, I come down roughly in the same place. And I think of it when you think of people are viewing this as a failure, which in the narrow sense, it's a failure for the prosecutors. But when you think about the goals of law enforcement generally in this case, they had two goals that were actually intention. One was to ensure the safety of the governor. And the other was to build a case that they can prosecute. And I think a lot of the debate after this case was about uh, whether they moved in too fast to arrest these guys. There are many debates, but one of the big ones is whether they moved in too fast to arrest these guys before a date for the kidnapping and some of the details were filled in. I think part of what is in dispute, at least from my reading out of it, is whether they encouraged or not. And I think like part of what uh, Williamson is saying is they didn't prove entrapment, right? Like, I think what you're suggesting is that there was entrapment. I think what Williamson is saying is that it's not necessarily true that they proved that the FBI entrapped or that Big Dan actually did plan key elements of this, but there was a reasonable doubt as to yeah, whether exactly. he did or not. So I want to be at least a little fair yeah. to the FBI. They on couldn't, this. to clarify, they couldn't prove that this would have happened had Big Dan not been involved in his yes, informant role. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely wouldn't use Crystal's example as like the most perfect um, standing up to like no scrutiny that there's a problem with the FBI necessarily. I think there are more egregious examples, some of the earlier ones that she talks about, certainly. But I think where I have a point of difference with her is just saying that this is definitively that they created this case where I feel like there is debate over the degree to which they were involved in it. But let's apply that standard, right? Let's let's say, all right, crystal ball standard of, in that case, I view it as incompetence. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't pull this as my example. But let's say it was something more than incompetence and that it was malfeasance or something like that. And by the way, they didn't get the conviction they wanted to, so that in a way that's the system working. But let's use that standard and let me give it the most charitable reading and say, all right, the FBI did something wholly improper in this case. Like, side note, like this was an, an attempted kidnapping of a governor. So, and we talked about this at the time, like I'm gonna give the FBI some leeway to get very aggressive in a mm -hmm. situation like that. But, but aside from that, what institution in American life is going to withstand the standard that she's outlining? You go to the Pentagon, right? You have Vietnam mm -hmm. under McNamara, Iraq under Rumsfeld, right? And she was giving a historical critique saying this is a fucked up institution from start to finish. Uh, and therefore, yeah, let's cheer on the abolish the FBI stuff, right? So yeah, Pentagon's no, gone. Mean... CIA, Contras, Mosaday in Iran, WND under Tenet, CIA's gone. The White House, Nixon, Trump, White House is gone. Congress, Tom DeLay, Denny Hassert molesting children, Congress is gone. FEMA, Katrina, FEMA's mm -hmm. gone. Who's going to deal with natural disasters? NSA, wiretapping. NSA is gone, right? Now what happens when countries like Iran or China are preying on our citizens or Russia, you know, poisoning American citizens yeah. like they do in Europe. Who's going to do anything about that? Never mind using that standard on people outside of uh, American government, like the Catholic Church. No more Catholic Church. We know what they did, right? What about corporations? Enron. What institution exists in American society that doesn't fuck things up royally at various points? Let's be targeted. For me, this is like really lazy populism trying to stir up audiences to be like, all right, yeah, let's abolish the FBI. All right, tell me what the world is gonna look like. Who's gonna be doing the work on this press release that I just did? Like, is it gonna be local law enforcement? Mm -hmm. Are they not gonna have the same fucked up issues that we talk mm -hmm. about the FBI? We're living in New York where like, 
you know, you look at Bill Bratton, you look at, she's talking about profiling. First of all, the NYPD participated in all that same fucking profiling that she's talking about. Never mind all the racial profiling that's happened for decades. Like, and that's probably true of every police department in America. To me, this is just totally fraudulent. There's a renewed conversation about holding the FBI accountable, though, which I think is a healthy thing for democracy. I agree that, I mean, I the conclusion that she ends up at of agreeing with Candace Owens on this, I'm not Therefore, I would not pick that example as like the most clear damning evidence that there's an issue within the FBI. I think that there are more egregious examples that I would personally point to that are just cleaner, right. cleaner cut. Um, but I think, you know, you look at the history of the FBI and the CIA and our intelligence communities, and they were operating with essentially like no no knowledge of the outside world. I think it was like the church committee, I want to say was the name of it, but the 70s when it was the first time that Congress actually probed what they were doing and and talked about it publicly and people were shocked. So there is a history and precedent of these institutions operating completely in secrecy with no accountability, which is not, which is much less so the case after that revelation. But I think that continuing to hold them to scrutiny is a healthy thing. The same way that I would defend holding any others to scrutiny, of course, saying abolish it is ridiculous, but there are countless examples throughout history of of it being uh, an arguably politicized institution or just a corrupt institution. Yeah, and but I think like the people are are commingling the Hoover era abuses, mm-hmm. which at that that was terrible. But you look at almost every institution in American society at that time, and it was fucked up in some way. With the Christopher Ray FBI, you know, a Trump appointee you know, where, where there's way more transparency. And instead of saying, okay, hey, how can we reform this institution by yeah. like reforming the whistleblower protections, how people seek and get mm-hmm. warrants, et cetera. Let's use political, hot-blooded, I would say misguided criticism of this particular raid to get potentially explosively dangerous documents out of Trump's Mar-a-Lago. Let's weaponize that to take down an institution you don't have an alternative to the FBI yeah. that's better than the FBI right now. So instead of saying, like, let's be measured and reform it, that's technocratic. And that's that's a neoliberal way of looking at things versus, oh, I'm the populist. Let's take down all these institutions. Yeah, tell me what the fuck the world is going to look like without that FBI. That's what I want to know, Crystal Ball. Like, what, what are we going to do without the FBI? And so... We'll continue to monitor this. To finish up today, we want to bring you a few updates on the conflict in Ukraine, starting with how Western aid is affecting the war on the ground. Ricky, give us the latest. Yeah, so the epicenter of the fighting right now is Kherson, a city in the Black Sea that fell to Russia on March 2nd. Um, It's part of roughly a fifth of the country that Russia has taken over. And Ukrainian forces there are using U.S. artillery weapons and a counteroffensive, and things are moving pretty slowly in in their attempts here. Um, Zelensky says that he's open to negotiating with Russian forces if they pull back to their original like borders, but it doesn't seem like that is in the near future. Then there's also this whole separate issue with the power plant right now in southern Ukraine. It's the center of a standoff since the early days of the war, but right now there's reported shelling very close to the plant, and there's limited ability of professionals to access it and secure it, and a very active risk of radioactive leak. This is the biggest power station in in, in Europe, a nuclear power station in, in Europe. And uh, if something happens, so there will be 
uh, huge consequences, not only for Ukraine, probably all Ukraine will be uh, contaminated. And in terms of the prognosis of where things are going from here, um, the ability of Ukraine to continue fighting is definitely dependent on economic capacity and the, the pace of Western aid coming in. The EU is kind of behind on some of the payments that they committed. There is renewed optimism from U.S. artillery that's arriving there. There is doubt over whether you know, the Ukraine that's not really used to being on the offensive, whether their forces will be able to um, pull it off. So I think we'll have to continue to keep an eye out on that. Yeah, some of these numbers are just absolutely uh, incredible. So the IMF has calculated that Ukraine needs $5 billion in aid per month. The U.S. had mm-hmm. approved in May $40 billion. So if you do the math, you know, U.S. plus Europe, money's going to run out. Ukraine's printing money to pay for its soldiers. This is leading to their own version of inflation. And obviously the economy basically non-existent you know in certain huge chunks of the country because it's a war zone and you have that combined with the fact that the ukrainian military will need to go on the offensive at some point in order to win this thing and isn't really trained to go on Mm -hmm. the offensive based on what we understand because they're trained to be a defensive uh military for obvious reasons so this thing could go on for a while huh Mm -hmm. yeah well we'll keep an eye on that i think that's all we got today Uh, We'll be back here on Thursday, and we want to thank you for listening. Please make sure to get on there and give us a five-star rating. Uh, Hit the like button and tell your friends about us. And I think uh, hopefully we'll have, you know, a little bit of distance between us and this raid for Thursday so we can focus on some other stories. But who knows? We'll see you Thursday.